Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is radio astronomer turned writer and broadcaster Marcus Chan. Marcus is currently cosmology consultant for New Scientist, and he's also the author of several highly successful popular science titles, all available from Faber. These include, and you can tell that Marcus has a talent for titles, The Never-Ending Days of Being Dead, Quantum Theory Cannot Hurt You, and now we need to talk about Kelvin. This new book starts with everyday experiences as simple as seeing your face reflected in a window pane, and shows that many things we take for granted provide clues to how our universe works at the deepest level. It makes for a fascinating journey. I asked Marcus to tell me more about tackling the great discoveries of science through the example of the everyday. Well, I live a kind of double life as, as an author. Most of the time I, I, I work at home, don't really talk to anyone, have a really quiet life, me and the goldfish. And then you, then you come to the kind of publication phase where you go out and you uh, uh, meet lots of people in a mad rush. Uh, whereas you've actually written a large explanation of, of something, you know, that's maybe thousands of words along, you're, you're faced with like one and a half minutes to explain it. And, and so I kind of like grasp for, for some kind of everyday example, everyday object to, to relate what I'm, what I'm, you know, what, what, what I'm explain to, you know, the cosmic thing I'm trying to explain. And I remember I was doing a talk in Edinburgh and I was trying to explain why we have quantum theory. You know, what, what, why, why, what, where did that come from? Quantum theory is our, our very best theory of the microscopic world of atoms and their constituents. And it kind of overthrew all the physics that came before. And I was trying to think, what, what was the conflict that triggered that, that theory? And, and it occurred to me that it was simply that we have a theory of matter, which says that matter is made of atoms, tiny little indivisible grains. And we have a theory of light. And the theory of light says that light is a wave, pretty much like a, a ripple on a pond. And the one thing you know about uh, ripples on a pond is they're kind of spread out. They take up a lot of space. But atoms are tiny, tiny things. And so I, I, I realised that actually when uh, an atom gives out light, which is of course what happens in a filament of a light bulb, or when uh, light is absorbed by an atom, which happens in your eye, it turns out that the light waves are something like 50,000 times bigger than the atoms. So it's very much like an atom spitting out a, a light wave is pretty much like opening a matchbox and out comes a 40 ton truck. Or alternatively, an atom absorbing light is pretty much, you know, you know, you've got a matchbox, you take it out your pocket, you open it, and a 40 ton truck can drive into it. So here's the conflict, that's the conflict. That is the, that is the paradox that hit physics in the, in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. How could they reconcile these two theories? Because, you know, they, they just, uh, this interface between light and matter, they conflict and they say impossible things. And of course the resolution turns out to be that actually light is not a wave, it's actually a particle. So it's actually, uh, it streams through space as a series of, of tiny little bullets, and we call them photons. And so the, the, that's, that's what actually happens, the, the photons are pretty much the size of atoms. But there's, there's more to it than that because it turns out that light is also a wave. You know, so we can't abandon that old picture and it's simultaneously a light and a wave. And this is where physics departs really from our intuition because we have to accept that, that light is something for which we have, no, we have no word in our vocabulary and we have no picture of anything in our everyday world which can, can really give us, tell us what light is in its entirety. You go back to the Greeks and you show that this impulse to, to use metaphors and to relate the known 
to the unknown or to explain the unknown by means of the known is a very long-lasting human impulse. But I suppose what's happened in the last few decades is, as you're saying, that the tools are, are becoming more and more worn. It's becoming more and more difficult because the concepts are becoming more and more alien to to be related to the normal yeah. everyday life that we have around us. And I see that I see that as actually happening. There was a crucial moment in in the late nineteenth century when this actually happened. We remember that Newton came up with a picture of the world, a clockwork picture, you know, I mean we had these laws of gravity or whatever, we, if we know where the moon is today, we know exactly where it is tomorrow, you know, we use Newton's laws of motion, his law of gravity, we can predict, you know, it's a clockwork universe. And uh, these were the models, that, that the pictures, the images that, that physicists tended to use to understand the world until they came up, really, we're talking about mid-19th century, when they were trying to understand electricity and magnetism. And the great Scottish physicist, James Clerk Maxwell, was trying to understand magnetism. I mean, we all know if we get a magnet and we put it near some iron filings, there's some kind of mysterious force that reaches out through the space and touches and, or, or, and, and tugs on the, the iron filing. So he was trying to think, how could that happen? And he thought, well, maybe there are little cogs you know, invisible cogs between the magnet and the iron filing. So, you know, that the magnet somehow turns a little tooth cog, which turns another tooth cog, and eventually it touches the iron filing. So that's how, how a force reaches through empty space. But it didn't work, his picture didn't work, so he then thought, well, maybe the cogs, maybe they're kind of springy. You've got all these springy cogs. One turns that, you know, one turns, it turns the next one. And eventually he threw up his hands in despair and gave up completely and realised that there was no picture, there was no mechanical picture. And that what, what really was around the magnet was what we call a magnetic field. This is a kind of a, a force field, an invisible force field, a tension in space. And the magnet creates this force field and it spreads through space and it's the force field that actually touches the the iron filing. So at this point, he, he, you know, physics actually detached itself from physical pictures and we realised that, that la nature's language is actually a mathematical language, a language of force fields and really that was a, a critical moment in the history of physics because if you look at the physics that came after that we are talking about atoms which can be in two places at once, we're talking about Einstein's theory of gravity which where gravity is actually the curvature of four-dimensional space-time we cannot ever get our heads around four-dimensional space-time because we are three-dimensional creatures and the current theory which is creating a lot of excitement is called string theory where we see the fundamental building blocks of matter as tiny little vibrating violin strings but they live in ten dimensions we've really given up on, on trying to explain nature in terms of things which are like the, the things that we see in the everyday world but in retrospect why should nature be like the everyday world I mean you know our intuition is, is as was developed um, you know, millions of years ago on, on the African plains, when we, you know, we had to survive with, you know, lions and, and vicious creatures, so we, we, we had to be able to run, we had to be able to see to the horizon, we had to hit here reasonably well, but nature and, and natural selection did not equip us with senses to sense the atomic world or the world of galaxies or whatever, so to me it's not surprising that those worlds are counterintuitive. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting point you made about how we've evolved and, you know, we're, we're equipped for foraging and running, but we're not equipped. We find it difficult to cope with the very large and the very small, let alone multidimensionality, don't we? The problems start quite quickly once you get to a certain order of magnitude, you know, to the power of 10, then yeah. most of us have difficulty grasping that. 
We do, and you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend that I can grasp the vastness of the universe. But as a kid, uh, I was always fascinated by the bigness of it, and I was always trying to get my head around it. And I do. I do think that children are fascinated by this. This is why they're interested in dinosaurs and things. You know, big things really fascinate kids. So uh, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get my head around it. But unfortunately, we, we you know, we, we, we cannot in, in, in the end ever do it. I do remember trying to, for an article I wrote for New Scientist magazine, I remember trying to figure out, I was trying to imagine how big the universe was. And the universe is populated by galaxies. They're the building blocks of the universe. And there are about 100 billion of them. We live in one, it's called the Milky Way. I, I do remember thinking, well, if the universe was about a kilometer, it was a sphere about a kilometer across, then the 100 billion galaxies floating in that sphere would be each about the size of an aspirin. Mm. Uh, Milky Way uh, is in a group of galaxies called the local group, contains about 30 galaxies, only one other big galaxy, it's called Andromeda, you can see it in the skies if you know where to look, and it's about 13 centimetres away, another aspirin. And the, the nearest cluster of galaxies is the Virgo cluster of galaxies. And that's about the size of a basketball and it's about three metres away. So I began to get some kind of picture. Actually, the universe is not really big compared to galaxies. Atoms are very small compared to us, but galaxies are actually pretty big compared to the, the universe that we're in. And that tells you something interesting about galaxies. They must collide a lot. And when we actually look back with the Hubble Space Telescope, we, we, when we look at great distance, we look, we're seeing back in time, we see galaxies which are very, very different to the ones today. So we can see that collisions and mergers and things like that have had a big role to play in the evolution of galaxies like our Milky Way. That really is one of the, the ways we can begin to grasp these ideas, isn't it? By using scale, scaling up and scaling down, because otherwise we are, we are all adrift. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what we do. And uh, in one of my books, I was trying to get my head round the emptiness of atoms uh, and I do mention it in, in the current book as well we all have this picture in our mind of uh, an atom pretty much like uh, a solar system you know with a little tight nucleus at the centre of an atom a bit of knot of mass pretty much like the sun with uh, electrons flying around flitting around pretty much like planets around the sun but what we don't realise is in fact the, the atom is incredibly empty. I mean, Tom Stoppard had this great image where he said that if the nucleus at the centre of the atom were like the uh, altar at the centre of the dome of St Paul's Cathedral, then the electrons were like kind of moths just fluttering around by the dome. So there's an incredible amount of empty space. How do you get your head around that? And really, the metaphor I came up with is, is that if you squeezed all the empty space, out of atoms. If you squeeze all the empty space out of the atoms of, of the whole human race, you could fit the entire human race in the volume of sugar cube. And that really just shows you how amazingly empty mm. empty space is. I mean, we are ghosts. Then, of course, the question is, why is matter, which seems so solid, so empty? And the answer to that is quantum theory, because it turns out that the building blocks of matter have this strange kind of dual quality. They've simultaneously can behave as kind of localized little particles and spread out waves and a, a wave is something that does take up it, it takes up a lot of room it needs a lot of elbow room and the electrons in the atom need a lot of elbow room because they are fundamentally waves and that's why they need this vast amount of, of, of space and why atoms are so empty so what you do in this book marcus is you take everyday familiar phenomena, things we're all familiar with, we may not even think about, you know, seeing your own reflection in a pane of glass, and you show how these everyday phenomena relate to some of the really 
big, interesting, tough questions of science. Yeah, absolutely. The idea from this book came from publicising my last book, when I suddenly thought, when I go on radio programmes, or uh, I'm constantly you know, grasping for this everyday thing, which I can relate the cosmic thing I'm talking about to. And then it suddenly occurred to me, well, why don't I write a book where I just do that? And it, it was a thread on which I could hang all these, all, these, uh, all these stories. It's subtitled, What Everyday Things Tell Us About the Universe. But of course, it's what everyday things tell us about the universe, knowing what we know today. I mean, you know, we, we do, you do need a little bit of background, and a caveman would not have come to the same conclusion, you know. But, but one of the things that's striking is your reflection in a window pane. If you, if you look through a window, you can see the scene outside, maybe you can see the traffic outside, but you can also see a faint reflection of your face. And that's because glass is not completely you know, it doesn't transmit 100% of light. Maybe it transmits 95% of light and maybe 5% gets reflected back from the surface so you see a reflection of your face. How do you, how do you understand that? Because it turns out we discovered in the uh, 20th century that light was a stream of bullet-like particles, machine gun bullets called photons, all identical. Well, how can you explain 95% being, being transmitted and 5% being reflected if they're all identical? I mean, they must all surely be affected identically by the glass. They must all go through and must all come back. And the person who, who really came up with the idea of the photon, who invented the photon, was Albert Einstein. And he was the person who realised that this observation, that you could actually see your face and you could also see outside of, uh, you know, of a window, was an earth-shattering observation. And it was, a, it was a bombshell in physics. No one else really saw it for a long time. Because what it means is that you have, you have to actually assume that each of the photons has a 95% chance of going through the, the window and a 5% chance of being reflected. So you have to allow randomness, unpredictability, into the heart of physics. And remember that physics was, was until, until that time, was a recipe for predicting the future. That's what physics is. So we know where the moon is today, we can predict where it is tomorrow. We just use, use the laws of physics to do that. But what Einstein realised is that the concept of the photon brings right into the heart of the phys physics the idea of randomness. If we were to follow an individual photon, a single photon, as it, as it headed towards a window pane, we would not be able to tell ahead of time whether that would be transmitted or reflected. We would only know that if we, if we shot 100, 95 would go through and 105 would come back. So it's fundamentally unpredictable. And as Einstein famously said, God does not play dice with the universe. Uh, unfortunately, he turned out to be wrong because God does play dice with, with the universe. And it's not simply photons, it's every single denizen of the uh, microscopic world, the atoms that you're made of, the particles they're made of, they all behave in this random fashion. This is probably the most shocking discovery in the history of science that actually you can see just by looking at your face in a window pane. But there's a, there's a kind of frisson of excitement and pleasure, though, when you sort of pull these familiar rugs out from under the reader, I think, just sort of saying, ha-ha, you think you understand this, but in fact, there's a, there's a lot more going on here, and it involves these things like randomness and unpredictability. Yeah, and probably it, it, takes, it takes a bit for, for you to actually appreciate what it, what it really means, and that's why Einstein realised how shocking it was, but nobody else did, because we're talking about real randomness. I mean, all the randomness that we think that, that the everyday world is not real randomness. A, a ball goes around a roulette wheel. 
you think you think that the the number it finishes on is random it isn't random you know if you knew the velocity and, and direction at which you threw the uh, at which the, the the ball was tossed if you if you knew the drafts that in in the casino if you knew all the conditions with it and you had a big enough computer you could work out the outcome because it turns out that the things that we think of as random are only random in in practice, not in principle. That we could, if you know, if we were if we were dull and boring enough, if we had a big enough computer, we could predict the outcome, and that's true of absolutely everything in our world. But this is irreducible randomness. This is randomness that it wouldn't matter how big a computer you had, it wouldn't matter how many, if you knew all the conditions <coughs> which were affecting a photon or an electron or an atom, you would never be able to predict the outcome. It, it's just not possible. It, you know, the universe is not constructed in that way. And that's why it's, it, it is quite shocking. The, the next question is, if the universe is fundamentally unpredictable, how come it appears to be predictable for us? I mean, how come that I know with quite a bit of certainty that the sun will rise tomorrow? You know, that I can, my, I can live a life where I can predict things that will happen. And the answer is that what nature takes away with one hand, it grudgingly gives back with the other. Because it turns out that although the universe is fundamentally unpredictable, the unpredictability is predictable. And expand, on, expand on that for me. Quantum theory <coughs> is a theory which predicts the unpredictability. So for instance, we can know um, that, that if an atom is flying through space, it has a 25% chance of going in this direction, and a 25% chance of going in that direction, and a 50% chance of going. So, so we actually can know with precision what the chance is. What we can't know is actually what it will do. So we, we, as I say, the universe is unpredictable, but we have a recipe for, for predicting the unpredictability. And that recipe is quantum theory. And it turns out that being able to predict the unpredictability is enough. It's enough to create a world where we do actually pretty much know in most circumstances what's going to happen.